Hello, my name is Brandon Boat, and you're listening to the Theater of Public Policy podcast. Our guest for the show is Zach Johnson, a fifth-generation Minnesota farmer who also has a wide social media presence known as the Millennial Farmer. Zach may be working with the soil that his grandfathers did before him, but he's facing a lot of modern challenges that call for new solutions. Enjoy the show. Our media sponsor for this season was MinPost, which provides reader-supported news and analysis. You can find out more information at MinPost.com. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Cheers. Cheers. Uh, Yes, and I'm extra appreciative that you're here because we have had in the past guests who have tried to say, oh, I know I said I would do your show, but now, like, I I can't just because I'm – Washing my hair those Mondays forever, and um, I'm used to it. You wrote a little while ago, and you're like, uh, "This is like a real thing." We actually are like doing the harvest then, and like as fun as your improv comedy show in Minneapolis sounds, uh, like we have to get crops out of the ground. Yeah, we've had some stuff going on for the last few yeah. weeks. So I so appreciate you being here, and I feel like the uh, how is the harvest? Uh, we act- so we actually finished harvesting the crops last Wednesday night. Okay, so, yay, yay, that's good. So that, that removes a lot of the stress once the crop is off the field and in the bins and we have the crop in and it's harvested. That removes a lot of stress. It doesn't mean the work is done, but it, it takes a lot of the stress off. So this year, I've, I mean, people have talked about that this year has been sort of crazy for uh, farming because of just a lot of weather things this year. Is yeah. that true? Yeah, I mean, the weather always plays games with us. I mean, it, it, it literally dictates my life a lot of the time as far as what's going on, whether I can make it to a comedy club in the Twin Cities or not. Fair. Uh, but, it's uh, a better excuse than 90% of people give me. So uh, I did wash my hair for you, too. Thank you. You're welcome. Uh, it, but, yeah, we had, uh, we had a lot of rain this spring, a lot. Um, it was a late spring. It got in late. Um, summer, summer wasn't bad, but it, it, it did keep raining and raining and raining. And then early harvest, it just rained some more. Uh, finally, the weather did lift, and it, it actually ended up not being too bad. So it, it went better, easier than what I was expecting at the beginning of harvest. So uh, before the show, I was talking to our amazing technician, Barb, and she was saying uh, she knows a lot of farmers. Farming, in some ways, just feels like it's just constant gambling because you are constantly like betting against the house, which is weather. Uh, is that a fair characterization? In a lot of ways, yeah. And we have, you know, we have different ways to spread the risk out, and, and you do what you can to control what you can control. But yeah, in a lot of ways, it's it's a lot of gambling, because you, you never really know how anything specific is going to go. So like this spring, when it was really rainy or whatnot, were there things that like just you changed or did differently because it was raining a lot this spring? Did you decide like, oh, we're going to grow this instead of this, or we're going to do this practice? I don't know. Yeah, at, at some point, a lot of guys will switch. Um, like in our areas, it's mainly corn and soybeans. Right. Um, and, and as far north as we are in the Corn Belt, it's really important to get things planted early. It means bigger yield, which means you know bigger profits, hopefully. Uh, and so once that date goes away and you start losing that, that time frame that we have for a short growing season, short window in our area, you start losing that for the corn, you'll start switching to soybeans because it's not as big a deal with the soybeans. Or, or you'll switch to an earlier season hybrid, we call it, where it's a, it's a corn that doesn't need as much heat or as much time to reach maturity. Why don't you just do the early season corn all the time? If there's like an easier, shorter corn. Usually, uh, typically the, the general 
feeling is because the longer season hybrids will yield better. Okay. So you want to, you know, you got to spread your risk out again. So we'll, we'll plant some earlier season hybrids and some later season hybrids. Um, but the general consensus is that a later season hybrid, if you can get it planted on time and it gets that heat, it will yield better. So you mentioned you grow primarily corn and soybeans. Yeah. As a lot of is that uh, is, is that just because they are sort of the biggest crop there? Or do you do you love corn and soybeans? Like, are they your like I'm I'm or like do you, if you could, would you just grow like eggplant? Um, it, no, I wouldn't grow eggplant. No. <laughs> Why corn and soybeans, then? Uh, I love eggplant, but go on. The reason for corn and soybeans is, I mean, there's several different reasons. Number one, the the local economics, that's what they want. That's what our infrastructure is built to. That's what there's a demand for. And so that's typically what cash flow is the best in our area. Um, And and that is, that's what what the the market wants in our area. So people will ask me, um, why don't you grow this or why don't you grow that? And well, because I'd have to drive 300 miles to deliver it to somebody who wants it. And so corn and soybeans, you can find a market for that all over the place around us. Um, the other reason is because you're, you're limited a lot of times on a lot of crops. You're limited by, um, by the weather, you know, where you are geographically or by soil types. Or sometimes, like in our case, um, we've got certain crops that we can't, you know, we, we don't want to grow sugar beets in our area because right in our area, we've got enough rocks that harvesting the sugar beets would be a problem. Oh, so. Geographically, we're okay, and weather-wise, we're okay, but w- we wouldn't be able to harvest them. So, uh, tell me a little bit, or tell us all a little bit more about your farm. Like, h- how big is it, and is it your family's farm that's it, come down? Yeah. So, my family uh, came here from Sweden in the 1870s. So, I'm a fifth-generation farmer. A lot of the land that we still farm is the same land that my great-great-grandparents homesteaded in the 1800s. Um, our farm is it's 2,600 acres right now. Uh, which it kind of depends on who you're talking to. Some people think that's a huge farm. Uh, some people think that's a small farm. But it's, it's full-time. It's my dad and myself, and, and that's what we are. So it's definitely a family farm. My wife and I just bought the farmhouse for my parents a year ago, so we're living on the farm and raising our kids right on the farm. Did you always want to do this? Yeah, I think so. You I, know, your, your parents are here in the audience, right? They like, are, uh, yeah. So it might be awkward for you to be like, no, absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> But they tricked me. Uh. <laughs> no, there, there was definitely times when I was younger, you know, where you other things sound more fun, and, and then but then you get to the the realities of life, and you realize that every job is a job, right? And, and you start to look at it and, and realize that um, farming, there was a good opportunity there for me to farm, and it, it certainly wasn't something that I didn't enjoy. Uh, and so I went to a couple of years of, of tech school, and I came back and worked on the farm with my dad, and, and eventually just realized that, um, this is a great opportunity, and it's a great way of life and a great place to raise your kids. And, I mean, at this point, I don't know what else I would want to do. So you, as you said, family farm. Like, you seem like a poster child for family farm. Uh, literally, you have three ge- – you have multiple generations, like, on your farm. Uh and I think that for a lot of us, we like probably think, oh, that is vanishingly rare, we might think. Because like, farms we read about are getting like bigger and bigger. Is that true? Are you sort of a rare bird in the farming world? So in the United States, family farms, as technically labeled family farms, are 97 to 98% of the farms in the United States. So let's unpack that definition then. Well, it's, in my experience, from what I know of it, it's true. When I, if I climb to the top of our grain lake, 100 feet in the air, and I look out 
around our county or our township, however far I can see from the top of there, and I look at everybody's farm place. It is all family farms, everybody. And, and just because we farm more acres and we have big machines and we have big grain bins and grain legs and we look like large farms, uh, that's, that's just the family farms you know, evolving to what they are now. We're, we're large, efficient farms in a lot of cases. Not in all cases, but in a lot of cases. But just because we cover a lot of ground and we do it efficiently with big machines doesn't mean that we're not family farms. I mean, so just to push on this a little bit, I, I was on a potato farm in North Dakota uh, several years ago, and uh, it was part of a system of f- potato farms that were like tens of thousands of acres like putting sure. together. And they were like, well, it's a family farm. Uh, they, you know, there is a family that owns all of this, uh, and they sit on the board of this farm. And I was like, I don't think that's what most people are thinking when they think family farm. Sure. And, and, you know, what you're going to think when you think of a family farm is going to be your own definition, right? So a lot of people have the, the romanticized thought of, of the guy on the old farm all tractor with the straw hat, and, and that's your family farm, Right. There's not a lot of those anymore, and and when I look at that, you know, that's just that's just the way it is. The same way as you walk out on the streets here, there's not a lot of horse and buggies out there anymore. That uh, yes, that well, I don't know. They, that's hip. Uh, I feel like I think old tractors are, are pretty s- cool too. There's scooters. Um, so uh, so well, you're talking about that. It's moving in that direction. I mean. Uh, I guess one of the can you have a small farm? Is there a way to make that work economically, like a per, very small farm potentially? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a place for everybody when it comes to agriculture. You may need to find a niche market, uh, if depending on what you're doing and how your farm is structured, because everybody's situation is a little bit different. It's it's no different than anybody else. A, a farm isn't just a farm. There's always a story behind it and. And is there other income that comes in from somewhere else? Um, is there multiple generations behind this? Do you own your land, or did you have to, you know, dig up every dime that you had to buy a few acres here? I mean, it, it's a different story behind every farm, but there is definitely a place for smaller. There's some very, very small farms that hit very specific niche markets that do very well. And so this is a fascinating piece to me because, you know, again, we probably, a lot of us have this idea in our head of farmer, like your job is to go and grow things. But then you're talking about there's this whole, like, huge part of it, which is like, then you have to go and find somebody to buy it. Um, And in your case, because you're selling corn and soybeans, there's a lot of, like, infrastructure built around that. But if you were, again, thinking, I'm going to go into eggplants, then you would have to then find somebody who wanted to buy thousands of eggplants. Well, I mean, you have to have a market for what you grow, right? I mean, if you want to be a farmer, if you're not just growing food for yourself and for your family, then you have to have a market. You you have to have somewhere to sell it to. Um, otherwise, you don't you don't have a, a business, right? It's like anything else. So, uh, if I wanted to start a farm, if I was like, I'm going to leave the lucrative world of improv comedy behind and start an eggplant farm, and start an eggplant farm, how how what would I have to do? Talk me through the steps. Well, you've got a you've got a very large advantage because you have all the money saved up from the improv world. Tons. you're going to need land some way or another whether that means buying the land or finding the land to rent you're going to need the soil or or a building you know there's there's agriculture within buildings so you you need a place to grow it you're going to need whatever machinery is required for that 
So there's there's a lot of capital involved. Yeah. Um, you're going to need to get into that some way or another. But it's like any other business. If you can come up with a business plan and show the bank that you can make this cash flow, I mean, that would be the, the key to that. So, I mean, because this is a thing. I, uh, I There's been a lot of writing about this recently, just how much capital is required on that front end. And I mean, yeah. I, we're talking about millions of dollars potentially when you get – to the land and the equipment and the crops and everything that you need? Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to jump in and start doing what, what my family and what I do, and you want to start with 2,600 acres and a full line of equipment and the grain bins to go with it, yeah, you're, you're talking about a lot of dollars to get into that. And, and that's, that's where I say, you know, I had this unbelievable opportunity to try to get into that. And we're still trying to figure out how exactly the transition of that works, because that's not an easy thing um, for any farmers. That, that's always an issue you know how do you how do you get the next generation in there? So that's the question. So I mean, you had this advantage in this way of like growing up in that. If there was somebody who wanted to get into it cold, like how how do they do it? Do they just have to like have access to a lot of capital? Is that the only way, or is there are there other pathways into this profession? You have to marry up. Someone says that sounded like my wife's voice. <laughs> Uh, it's difficult. I get asked that question all the time, and I don't have a great answer for it. What, um, one of the things I'll say is that uh, the American farmer in general is aging. The average age is, is up there in the, in the upper 50s, I believe, at this point, for the average age of the American farmer. Um, some of those guys or girls, men and women that are farming, don't necessarily have somebody else who's coming in that wants to farm. It's, it, it's difficult to find people who want to farm. Um, so, you know, a lot of people in that position are excited if they can find somebody who's excited to farm. And I actually have a good friend who kind of got in that way. He had a smaller family farm and his neighbor up the road uh, didn't have anybody coming to take take over after him. He was the only guy there and he had a very large, successful farm. And they're now working together. They're farming together and they're trying to figure out how to transition this farm from from the, the outgoing farmer to the younger generation. Be, and And the biggest issue, you know, is... Because of the capital. How do you take that over? How does a 20, 30-year-old take that over? It's not easy. That doesn't sound easy, but you're saying there is a piece of this which is just befriending an aging farmer. Um, Can be, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I... (laughs) Buy him a beer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Marry up. All right. Um... Uh, let's talk about a few other things uh, that I wanted to get to. Um, so, oh, so I know you get asked this a lot, but it's just such a like hot topic in the news, which is uh, stuff around trade, and you know there are these tariffs, and uh, people are talking about uh, China is not buying soybeans because we are sort of in a trade war with China. And I know that I've heard people talk about that's not good. I'm curious, how does that actually just show up? Like, do you just drive to, do you drive your soybean somewhere and then probably like, we're not buying them today. Take them back. Uh, like, what is it actually, how does that kind of show up for you? Well, so, so there's a price that is set every day. It's constantly changing as far as what our commodity is worth. Um, and it's set on the, it's generally set on the Chicago Board of Trade. Um, but then there's a local price that will, that will adjust from, based off of that Chicago price. So we have, you know, our local markets have their prices on what they're willing to pay any time, right? So if, if the demand goes down, if China says we're not buying anything and the demand for soybeans goes down, um, that price, that is reflected on the prices. So it's like somewhere China releases a statement says we're not buying soybeans. That gets like priced in 
on a trading floor in Chicago. Yes. And then that the fact that Chicago is like, we're not buying soybeans. And then that gets all the way back to the co-op or the grain elevator where you are. Yeah, because the, the local markets around us, you know, they have to sell. They're going to hedge all of their grain through the Chicago Board of Trade. So whatever price that is, I mean, everybody wants to pay the lowest amount possible that they can to still get it. So, yeah, if, if China comes out and says, we're not buying anything, and it shows on the headlines, it's no different than the stock market. The computers pick up that headline within fractions of a second, and the price drops. That's so... Is that, uh, is that terrifying? Like, to just fl- open the computer and be like, oh, come on, be a good number, be a good number? At times, yeah. yes. Um, but there again, you know, that's a... That's a uh, you mitigate the risk by trying to market some of that ahead. And there's, there's, there's marketing that you can do to try and, and sell a little bit at a time and, and put it on contracts so that, you know, you don't just have a grain bin full of grain, essentially, as a piggy bank, and then just sell it at whatever price you have to. This is another piece I don't... So, okay, right now, let's say soybean prices maybe aren't as good as they could be, and you think, okay, I'm going to... I'm going to hold, like I'm going to try and wait. Is it literally it just sits there and you wait? Yeah, uh, and, and if you can. I mean, if you can afford to let that sit there and wait, because that's your piggy bank, if you can afford to let that sit there and wait, um, and you think that prices are going to get better, then yes. Wow, that is, that is real gambling, uh, it seems like. I, and how long can you wait? You know, we put, we store it in the bins, so we monitor the moisture as we're storing it in the bins. It all gets run through the system. We know what the moisture is at, the moisture content in the seeds, the corn and the soybeans. And then we have aeration fans in the bins to, to keep it fresh as well. And, and like this time of year, we have the advantage of actually freezing that grain. And so we'll turn the fans on and freeze the grain, and it, it will hold for a long time. Wow. Um, we've got corn in the bins right now that is from a year ago, and it's possible that that won't come out of our bins for another year yet so are people ever like "Mm, i want some of that like vintage 2014 soy (laughs) that would be a niche market yeah (laughs) delicious um so uh you have this whole social media presence and well i mean can you just maybe just share a little bit about like what you were i don't know why 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 did you start that uh, through experiences in my life, I started to realize uh, about five years ago that people are disconnected from agriculture. Much, you, you know, I, I've grown up with it, so I've, I've taken it for granted. And, and knowing agriculture is something that's always been around me. I've always known it. And I was starting to see uh, family members and classmates and people who I thought were close enough to agriculture to, to you know, sort of understand it. And I was starting to see and hear them say and, and talk about things that just flat out weren't true. Ooh, give me an example. Like, what's this really stupid thing somebody could say about agriculture? <laughs> one, of the, one, of the, one of the big things for me was GMOs. That's what's got oh, it all yeah. started, right? And, and that can be a... It, it not can be. It is a, it's a difficult topic because some people love it and some people hate it. So genetically modified uh, organisms... That's uh, what it stands yeah, for, for, yes. It stands for, so, and so, yeah. Yeah, so we genetically engineer the seed in order to be more efficient with that seed. Or, like in our case, um, we've, we've got corn and soybeans that are genetically engineered to withstand certain herbicides, which actually means that we put less herbicides on them because they will withstand... Uh, the one that is actually more efficient and actually less harmful for the environment. We've got corn that is genetically engineered uh, to, to withstand the stress from caterpillars that we call the corn borer. And all it is is 
there's a natural organic protein within that plant that kills that caterpillar. The, and the corn borer. Yes. Corn, that sounds like a Star Trek villain. Uh, it, the corn borer. It's worse. It's worse. <laughs> uh, so, and so you're saying, I take it your point is like, these GMOs, like people are having a stronger reaction to them than you feel as though they should? Yeah, it, it's a difficult thing to really to try and explain, but the way that, that we're using genetically engineered seed or GMOs is, is all in all to be more efficient and be better for the environment. And, you know, the, the scientific journals that have studied these things over the last 25 years that we've been using them in our food and human, for human consumption, they've never found a single negative side effect to them. Um, and, and there are arguments against that, of course, but, I mean, the fact is that science says that they are safe. And, but it's a powerful technology that we could, we could use wrong. To this point, it's not been proven that we've done anything wrong with them. But, yeah, that, I mean, it's, an, it's another one of those technologies that you have to be careful with. So the GMO piece, uh, I, I've read a lot of those studies about them being uh, ha- not having these adverse effects for human health. The piece that I will say gets me more worked up or worried is this like monoculture-like argument that like, oh, all of our crops are going to be very similar, and then some super caterpillar is going to come along that just happens to like target that thing, and now so many of our crops are the same that we will all not have corn and soybeans and have to live off eggplant. That would be good for you. Yeah, it's great for me. Um. You know, the, the monoculture thing is, is, it's a whole other subject, right? But <clears throat> for some reason it gets lumped in with GMOs. And I don't know why that is, because it really, it's independent from GMOs. It has nothing to really do with GMOs or, or genetically engineered crops. But the, the monoculture is a whole other argument in and of itself. And and that's that. Okay, <laughs> you know, you, it doesn't keep you up at night the way it keeps it, me up just thinking about all those well, like I mean, if cloned you, corns. If you go back to the '30s, and people don't want to believe this, but you go back to the 1930s when we were going to farm fence row to fence row. Mm-hmm. The United States of America grew more acres of corn and soybeans 90 years ago than we do today. What? Well, because the Greatest Generation, they worked hard. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. Okay, boomer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Somebody, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so, uh, okay, so, oh, you, you brought up the, uh, the environmental piece, and I know that this is a thing that you talk a lot about. Farmers are connected to the land. Like, that's your livelihood and whatnot. So, I, I, I mean, help me, talk me through some of that. Like, what are the things that, you know, you see that you're paying attention to in terms of that, like, environment piece that maybe those of us who aren't working the land literally might miss or not see? The first thing to remember that I always like to point out to people is that we're the farmers out there. We're the ones living with that dirt, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got that dirt on my jeans every day that I go to work. My kids play in that dirt. Um, my kids swim in the lakes. We drink the water out of the wells on the farm. That's our community, and, and that's our livelihood. So if we don't take care of that soil and that water out there, I mean, it affects nobody quicker than it affects us. So it concerns us as much as it would, should concern anybody else, right? The second thing is that when it comes to how we manage those resources, and you're talking about you know, the fertilizers and, and the pesticides that we use on that land generally, um, the other thing to remember is that we never want to use more fertilizer or more pesticides than what we need. As a farmer, economically, that just doesn't make sense. If I want to grow you know, a certain amount of corn on an acre, 
all I want to put on there is whatever fertilizer I need to grow that corn. I'm not going to dump a whole bunch of extra fertilizer on there and a whole bunch of extra pesticides on there because it doesn't make sense economically. I can't cash flow if I do that. There's no point in doing that. So I want to use the smallest amount that I have to use to get by using those methods. So, and that all makes a ton of sense to me. I should say, we did a show earlier this year um, around water quality issues, and obviously this all came up. And, you know, one of the things that the guest was saying was agriculture, we have built a system that does sort of work this way, and you can see the effects of it, right? Like, you can see what's happening in the water and the fact that the fertilizer's in there. So, on the one hand, I, I completely appreciate your point. You're very close to it. And then it's also like, but there's something that's missing because we are putting a lot of things into the water that are problematic. And so where, I don't know, how do we sort of close that gap? That it's a, it's a really difficult topic but but I, I you know i understand what you're saying and i can see it from both points of view because there's always a push pull there right mm-hmm. so when you grow when you grow corn i mean we need corn there's obviously a demand for it it's used in so many different things um we're going to grow corn corn requires nitrogen um so when you're talking water quality basically if you're talking water quality and and as it relates to what i do you're probably talking about nitrates yep. in the water and the general uh, idea is that the nitrates come from the fields and end up in the water. Um, there's been a lot of research done that will, will show one way or another, um, talking with uh, some of the nitrogen scientists at the University of Minnesota, what I've found there is, is that the studies that they've shown is that farmers are actually have a really, really good understanding of how much nitrogen it takes to grow that corn um, and are always doing better with it. And some of the studies show that the same amount of water or the same amount of nitrates are going to leave that field, whether it's through corn production or organic breakdown of, of material anyway, because there's always nitrates out there. It's, it's, an, you know, it's a naturally occurring thing. When anything breaks down, it, that creates nitrogen. And, and so the nitrates are going to be there. And the unfortunate part or the difficult part, maybe not unfortunate, but the difficult part is that nitrogen needs to be in the nitrate form in order for corn to be able to uptake it, in order to use it. That also in the nitrate form, that's the leachable form that we get that ends up in the groundwater. Um, there's, there's always stuff being done to, to advance our, uh, our nitrogen management, we call it. Um, we've got sensors out there now that do a pretty good job of telling us how much nitrogen we need or maybe don't need. There's a lot of research being done on that. It's very, it's very difficult right now but there's a lot of research being done on it. We also have uh, something we call nitrogen stabilizers, which is something that we can put on the nitrogen to slow down the organic breakdown of that nitrogen so that it stays in the stable form so that it actually binds to the soil rather than washes through the water. Um, So it will hold that nitrogen over longer. And these are all things that we're working on. That's very cool. Um, I should in the second half of the show, we open it up for you all to ask questions of our guests. But let me ask you one last one before we go out. What's the coolest technology thing you have because you have a lot of cool technology things the way this fall went i I would kind of like to get rid of all technology really yeah what why because computers have really made me angry over the last couple of months do you have an do you is it siri uh no i would never say a bad thing about siri good any particular ones can we help did you try calling it I, yes, I did. Did you try unplugging it and plugging it back in? 
So you work for IT. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Any particular... Um, well, the, the big one that really got me was our, our management software, I call it, that keeps track of what we plant, when we plant it, the population we plant it at. I mean, it keeps track of everything we do in the planter. And then we carry that over. It's all on an iPad. It's on an iPad app. It goes up into the cloud. So you can bring any iPad in and, and throw it on the app, and you've got it in your combine with you. And it keeps track of all the data coming in through the combine. I could not get that system to work for most of harvest. Man, that sounds like a really frustrating thing. Very. That I would guess, like, your dad and, like, grandfather would be like, well, so what? Uh <laughs> And me now. Yeah, exactly. On that note, can you all do a big round of applause? Zach Johnson. Okay, so if you have a question. Oh, so quick. So I just have to do my little announcement. So if you have a question that you would like to ask of our guests, please raise your hand. I'll race towards you in a non-threatening manner and uh, give you the microphone and a sticker. All right. This, there was someone, a gentleman in the back here who was very prompt. He raised his hand before I could even, like... Get the words out. So here you go. Would you be nervous to have a large cricket farm next to you? Ooh, that is Would a good question. Would you care about if there was a large cricket farm next to you? So I, I, were you at our – so this is a little bit of just um, filling in the blank here. We did a show earlier this season – with someone else who uh, was here to talk about sort of the growing uh, culture of uh, crickets and eating bugs generally as like a source of protein. And she talked about that Minnesota over the last like five years has had cricket farm, like multiple cricket farms open. Would you have any concern or problem with someone opening a cricket farm across the road from you? Well, not as long as they maintain the electric fences. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I want to see that movie. Hi. Um, my niece is actually an ag teacher in uh, Thief River Falls, and she wanted me to ask you, what do you think that students should be learning about agriculture today? Mm. Great question. I feel a lot of responsibility to answer that. I don't like it. Uh. <laughs> um, I, I would say one thing that's probably underrated is the business management aspect of it. Um, there's, there's a lot of actual business management that has to go into the decisions you make on your farm every day. So if there's a, a younger person who wants to get into it, I would say definitely don't forget about that side of it. it it's great to want to work hard every day because we have to do that too, but don't forget about the business side of things. Okay. Uh, yes. Up here in the front. Hello. Hello. Um, if you have drain tile, how did you have so much standing water in your fields this year? If we we're going to have to do, we're going to have to unpack a couple of those words. Um, <laughs> she's seen the videos. Yep. <laughs> so, the, um, so the question was, if you have drain tile, how did you have so much standing water in your fields this year? Um, for those who may not know, drain tile is is just what it sounds like. Um, I guess it's a it's it's perforated pipe that we put below the soil usually about three feet below the soil in, in our fields, in the wetter areas of the fields, to drain the excess water in the soil profile. And, and it, it can get a bad rap from, from a few different reasons, um, but when you really look at the science behind it, we're actually adding nutrient-holding capabilities to our soil by draining the excess water 
rather than allowing that water to sit there within that soil profile and, and break down and take the nitrates with it. So um, she's asking how we ended up with so much water in our fields if we have drain tile installed. And really the answer is because drain tile is not necessarily cheap. Um, so not every acre is always, is always tiled the way that you'd like it to be. So like on our farm, we, we always try to continue to add drain tile in the areas that need it, but most farms are not completely drained out because it's, uh, it's a process. All right, good question. I, there was a hand here. Hi, uh, I thought it was really interesting that you talked about needing a market for corn and soy. Uh, and there's been some interesting pieces around the ethanol changes moving from E10 or E15 to a, a year-round E15. Do you think that that's causing uh, a market problem? That it's, it's over-incentivizing corn and creating too much infrastructure for corn and soy that doesn't necessarily be, isn't necessarily needed in the market? Like it's, you, you, you're asking if maybe it's propping up a false demand? And creating the infrastructure you were talking about needing. So it's creating both, both a false demand and reinforcing the infrastructure behind it. Well, I, I guess... When you, if you're specifically talking about ethanol, the one way that I would have to look at it is if you're not blending in the ethanol, um, then, you're, then you're using more oil. And whether that's good or bad, um, I don't know. That's up to you to look at it that way. But the ethanol is clean burning, and it's renewable, and it's homegrown right here. And yes, we have oil here too, but we import an awful lot of oil. So I guess, you know, if you're asking if the ethanol demand is, is, is adding to the, to the market value, then yes. But... But the fact that we use ethanol is also cleaning up our, our air and, and giving us energy independence. So I, maybe just to blow out that question a little bit, though, I, there, I can totally imagine someone saying, like, okay, we, there, we built a lot of stuff so that we could, like, take corn to market. And then maybe at some point we're like, oh, we don't actually maybe don't need as much corn for some of the things that we used to need it for. But we built all this infrastructure. So now we just got to find other stuff to use corn for uh, in order to, like, keep all that infrastructure we built going. Is that a thing that you see or is it like you're at some point in maybe what might literally be a worldwide system that you're like, mm, that's not something that comes into my purview? Well, it is definitely a worldwide system. Yeah. Uh, such a huge percentage of our soybeans go to China. Um, a, a huge percentages of our corn will go to China or Mexico, Canada. I mean, we, we export a lot of our commodities. And so it isn't just, you know, the, the, the price of corn doesn't just go by how much ethanol we burn in Minnesota. You know, that's a very small amount of what the demand really is worldwide for corn. Right. Okay, good. Uh, there were a bunch of other hands. I don't want to... So I'm going to go up there, and then I promise I will come back this way, but I'm going to make my way up into the rafters. Hello, who was with you? So um, estimates put an average yield on an acre of marijuana at a million dollars. If Minnesota ever gets its act together, would you consider converting to marijuana and converting like 2,000 of your acres to a more natural habitat? So you, you said, say the first part of that again. A million dollars an acre would be the, you're saying the gross profit estimated? Well, it's, it's the yield. I don't know if it's the gross profit, but. Well, I, I guess if they opened it up and, and marijuana became a viable crop, um, my guess is that probably what would happen is if you're talking about big profits and big dollars instantly, you're going from a market where it's almost zero to 
to a market where it's now legal and and when you make promises that you know the per acre profit is going to be astronomical then everybody is going to plant a few acres of it which is going to come back to supply and demand and all of a sudden it's going to be worth nothing did you see that in some version with the CBD and like uh, legalizing sort of uh, hemp growing? Because there were stories again earlier this year about like, oh, uh, all of a sudden it's legal to grow hemp. And then like there were just, you know, people who are coming out of the woodwork to figure out, oh, I'm going to grow some hemp. Did that actually happen? Yeah. So, so the, the actual acres on hemp in Minnesota over the last five years, about Four years ago, we actually looked at doing a very, very small acreage as, as like a sort of a pilot program for hemp because it, it had become legal in the state of Minnesota. There were some uh, roadblocks to that, mainly because it was still federally illegal, um, and so we didn't end up doing it. But I kind of kept my eye on the acres, and they went from about 30 acres of hemp in the state of Minnesota five years ago to 50 to 80 to a couple hundred here uh, maybe a couple years ago. I don't know what the actual acreage was in, in 2019. I can't say for sure what it was, but it was considerably more. Um, and there again, I can't say what the prices have done for the CBD or for the, for the fiber side of hemp. But, um, I mean, I can imagine if all of a sudden in one year, you know, it, it opens up tenfold what it's been the last few years, then you wouldn't be able to give the stuff away. I mean, the processing plants that are using the, the raw material or the, the end users only needs so much. So all of a sudden, if there's 10 times that much on the market, it would just completely crash that price. All right. I think I saw a hand. Oh, oh. He ants. Wow. What, you guys are a good pair. All right. So, um, yes, hello. Oh, thanks. So 2,400 acres? 2, yeah, about 2,600, yep. Um, have you guys done any experimentation, or are you looking at um, cover crop rotations or uh, low-till scenarios? Um, yeah, that... Actually, if some, some of you maybe know, but I'm actually on a podcast with Minnesota Public Radio called Fieldwork, um, where we discuss that very thing. We discuss um, sustainable practices and different ag practices. Um, we've actually tried cover crops about four times on our farm. The, the last time we tried them was this fall, and they're still sitting on a pallet in the shed because they, we, we, we couldn't get them out. What, what, can you just define cover crop for folks who maybe don't know? So I guess the way I would explain a cover crop would be a, a crop that you would put in um, in the interim. In either You can put it in between rotations of crops, or you can put it out with the actual crop. And there's different things that you try to ch achieve with that, whether it be nitrogen fixation, because certain plants will pull nitrogen from the atmosphere and fixate it within the roots to, to actually add nitrogen to the soil for your next crop. Or uh, you can use it as erosion control if, you've, if you're concerned about either, either water or wind erosion um and and then when you've got soils like ours where we have a we have a whole winter in there where essentially nothing's moving nothing's going on with the microbial bacteria or the activity within the soil um you can add some of that crop to keep the to keep the microbial activity going in between crops whether it be late fall or early spring the challenge we get up here is that uh half of our crop this year wasn't harvested until the ground was frozen solid so getting that crop established is, is not as simple as it sounds. Uh, we have flown it on in late, late summer and into early fall to try to get something established before the leaf drop on the soybeans and, and try to get something growing. And it's, for us, it's failed every time. Um, there's a lot of challenges with it, whether it be, you know, the economical challenge isn't as big of a challenge as just the, 
the the uh, logistics of it, the machinery and the cost of of getting that machinery, and then a lot of farms, like in our case, we only have enough guys. We have enough guys to do what we need to do. We don't have an extra guy and an extra tractor and an extra drill sitting there to go out and plant that cover crop whenever it works out well. It just doesn't work that way. So how how do we fix that? Well, uh, if you figure it out, let me know. Okay. <laughs> um, but the other thing is, you know, there's there's an opposing side to that that says maybe we don't want to fix that. Um, we talk a lot. I find it really interesting that in, in the U.S., and especially in the upper U.S. up here in the northern Corn Belt, we talk a lot about um, minimizing tillage and adding cover crops because we're trying to build soil health, mm. and we're trying to keep the water clean. Um, and then you go to uh, Alberta or Montana, western Montana, where they have lighter soils and they get way less rain, and they are actually having, the farmers are having really great success with using cover crops and no-till, but now the non-farmers are upset because there's so much phosphorus in the water mm. because of all the, the organic breakdown of the material because there's all these plants growing in the field to, uh, to you know, more times of the year. And so you've got a whole system there that got changed to what we think is great, and then you go other places in the world not so far away where they're having you know, reverse side effects or adverse side effects to that because it's causing a whole other problem that nobody had thought of. It just seems like you can't win. You can't win with the the plants. I mean, come on. Why? Yeah. Could maybe Theo could come sing a song about yeah, it? Yeah, they all could. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, well, I have two last questions. One, I, I we mentioned you do you've developed this uh, social media profile and you do these uh, podcasts and things like that. And one piece of your bio that I read says that you you're. You make actually more money doing that than you do farming. Is that true? It wasn't on my bio, but that was uh, <laughs> uh, yes. That came from a Bloomberg article uh, that that I did uh, a few months back. It did, but when I talked to the reporter, um, she was really pushing. She wanted to know numbers, which is very difficult in both social media side of things and in farming to give a number because as soon as you give a number. Somebody not involved in it takes that number and they think that's what it is, right? But when the reality is in farming, it can be very, very good and it can be very, very bad. Right. And so the question she asked to get that answer was, will you make more money in 2019 from farming or from social media? And I said, well, probably from social media. Oh, well, how, 10 times more? Twice as much? How much more? And I said, well, uh, maybe five times more. But in my head, I was thinking that's because I'm going to make almost nothing with the farm. So, five so you're making times, five times five, nothing. Yeah, it's really not that much. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I was using this as a segue to ask about, so you have kids now, right? Yeah. And they're watching you do these two things together. Do you, do you think about, like, are you trying to steer that, like, no, no, don't, I, I don't want you to, like, uh, become very popular doing combine karaoke. Uh, become very popular uh, because you are growing good crops uh like that's a balance that we actually we have conversations like that every night between my wife and i um my kids now i mean they you know they don't think it's any big deal um but the other day uh we were we were getting my son ready to go to hockey practice and i i've been harvesting all year so i haven't been to hockey yet this year and he said are you coming i said yeah there's gonna be a lot of kids that want to meet you 
And I, I wasn't sure how to take that, you know, because I, I don't, I don't want to be that guy. I mean, because... Oh, but end, you are that guy now. Well, yeah, that's exciting. In, La- in Lowry. In Lowry. <laughs> if you make it in Lowry. Yeah. But, but it was an awkward feeling to, to think of it like that because, you know, I, I really, that's not what I'm asking for or looking for. I'm really, what I want to do is get the word out about farming and who farm families are. So uh, that leads me to my last question, which is you have this room full of people here who came out tonight to hear you. And again, I'm, a lot of us will be with other people and we'll probably talk about this thing, this show that we saw tonight. We, we met a real farmer in Minneapolis. Um, <laughs> I can't believe you guys have paved roads down yeah, here. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Stoplights. Yeah. Uh, so what is it that you would like? I mean, what is it that you hope that that big message is that folks take? Or the one thing that you hope folks take back with them and say, you know, I heard, I actually met this like real farmer and like we were talking and uh, people get this wrong. This is like the real thing. Well, I would say, I mean, if you heard me tonight and, and, and you listen to what I'm saying and and you realize that, you know, I'm a father and a husband and a farmer and, and a real person. And when I say that I can climb up to the top of my grain leg and look out and see all the neighbors' places, and they're all the same as me, I mean, that, that really is the truth, that the American farmer still is the American farmer. And we may not be the romanticized vision of, you know, the old guy with the straw hat on the cabless tractor anymore, but we, we are still the same people out there doing what we love to do. On that note, can you all do a big round of applause, everybody? Zach Johnson. Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you'd like to attend one of our live shows or are interested in working with us on an issue you're passionate about, you can find out more information on our website at www.t2p2.net and on Facebook and Twitter. Also, if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it. Thanks.